house of God today. There's a large group of people that are enjoying cooler weather. There's a large group of people that are at Disneyland with all the Bible quizzers. They are giving them some rewards for finishing the Bible quiz season. And so we're a little bit scattered today, but you're in the house of God today, and I thank you for being here today. James chapter 2, verse number, actually, I'm going to read the verse that is typically picked out of this passage of Scripture. And it's a really good one, but it's connected with more verses. There's a context there. So sometimes we just pluck this verse out, we quote it. It's a great work verse, but it's connected to some other verses. I'll read those other verses. I'll just read this main verse, verse number 19. And then we'll go back and while you're seated, we'll read the rest of these verses that surround it. Verse number 19, thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. I want to speak for a few moments today on the devils in the details. The devil is in the details. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your word. We ask that you would direct us and guide us today. We give to you thanksgiving. We thank you for your word and what it provides to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. So as I've just stated, there are verses that surround this particular verse. One of the complaints by many theologians, if you put any uh, allegiance or respect into those that study and call themselves theologians is that many times people will proof text. That means they will take a verse and they will pluck it out of wherever it's coming from. Every scripture is connected to another scripture. That's what context means. There's a context for just about everything. Conversation has context. The news cycle and the way they are playing the news nowadays. What they do is they take things out of context and then they run with it and they don't give the full context of what was said, what happened before, what happened afterwards. They just pluck something out and whether or not it was positive or negative, they run with that and people get all up at arms depending on what part of the conversation you are involved in about what is being stated, but there's not, a, there's not enough fabric that gives to us what was really stated or what is really going on. The same thing can take place in studying the scripture. If you take a text out and you just extrapolate it and you just use it alone without the context of which it is found in, many times you will miss what is really trying to be stated. This is a great passage of scripture and I've quoted it, I've used it, I understand all that. It's a powerful scripture because there is a determination at the front end of it that there is one God. And James is making that particular claim very, very clear. But James is putting that verse in the context of a broader conversation. And it starts in verse number 14. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and hath not works? Can faith save him? These are questions that James is setting up the conversation. And he asks two questions. 
If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. And then verse 19. So he's, he's talking about faith, the relationship, the symbiotic relationship. There is a connection between faith and works, which is activated faith. They are connected together. And so he's talking about this, about an individual that would say that they have faith, and yet they don't provide what they say they have. And so he's saying that, and then he inserts this verse about believing in one God. Uh, the devils also believe and tremble. And then following that, this would be the context of all of this passage of Scripture. He continues, but wilt thou know, O vain man, that without faith, that faith without works is dead. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works and by his works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. I want to be called a friend of God. What a title that is connected to an individual. This particular individual was Abraham, the father of the faithful. Standing in the house of God today, we can be aligned to his example because we can be people of faith. And when you enter into a relationship of faith, there is a friendship with God that takes place. Verse 24, you see then how that by works... A man is justified and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. So this concludes the entire picture, the whole context. And in that is a passage of scripture in which he is talking about a theology of God, a Christology of God, a oneness of God, and he inserts that the devils even understand and know this. And so today I'm coming to you to speak to you about the devil is in the details. That's an idiom, that's a phrase in which people use. And if that's hard to understand, buy something of any sizable nature at any big box brand store. And open it up and see that it's not put together. It requires assembly. And the devil's in the details. It looks good on the floor. You see this cabinet. Wow, that looks really nice. I'm going to buy that and take it home. But when you get it home, there's some details that must take place. you got to put it all together. Sometimes it takes hours. And if you're like most people, you're going to launch out and you're going to put it together despite reading the details. And then at some point, you're going to have to break it all down and open up something and try to read it and get some kind of sense of how this all goes together and then put it back together again because there's a manual 
And it says on there, assembly required. And somebody in China somewhere is figuring out how to layer the instructions so that people like us can understand exactly how this thing is pieced together. And it can be very, very frustrating. Anybody know what I'm talking about here today? <laughs> yes, okay. Absolutely. And so the devil's in the details, meaning that there's some action that has to be placed in what is given. And so this verse is part of a greater thought. It's not to be isolated, because if it's isolated, the real meaning is lost. James is writing to the 12 tribes of Israel. He's writing to Reuben, Sibion, Levi, Judah, Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Joseph, which was made of two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, and Benjamin. Those are the 12 tribes of Israel. And James is writing to these 12 tribes. And these 12 tribes represent all of the Jewish people that have been, at this point of James' writing, scattered throughout the world due to the dispersion or the captivity in Babylon. So they were taken captive by the Babylonians. The northern tribes were taken captive by the Assyrians. And so there was a diaspora. The Jews were spread around in the earth. And so they were carried off into Babylonian captivity. We know the story that there were some, Nehemiah, there were some that came back and they rebuilt the walls. There was a group that came back out of captivity rebuilt Jerusalem, and resettled back in Jerusalem. But for many, many, they never made it back to Jerusalem. And so this in Jewish history is known as the diaspora or the scattering. And so there are the 12 tribes, and they are scattered all around the world. And James, when he opens up his book, he is writing to the 12 tribes of Israel, and it has value to them. He is writing from a New Testament understanding. James has been in an upper room, and James has experienced an upper room experience. And so he's pinning some things that specifically speak to the church. And so this document is of value to us today and has great value. Speaking of value, James starts this, and he asks a couple of questions in the beginning. He says, what doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? I want to say here emphatically today, it is possible to separate faith from works. It is very, very possible. So James is asking that question. Is it possible that a man says he has faith and he does not have works? Is that a possibility? It is a possibility. You can say, I've got faith in something. But if you don't put it into action, there's not going to be any works that is based on the faith that you have created or from where it originates. This is one of the reasons why preaching can be powerful if it is listened to but also applied. I find it funny sometimes uh, ministers and people, and I, I probably have even said it myself, they'll say, I'm not preaching for your response. Well, that is a hill of beans. That is so untrue. I mean, that is as untrue as sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's not true either because words sometimes 
Hit me upside there. I'd rather you hit me upside with a two-by-four than to say some things that you said. Because I'll live, I'll get over the two-by-four, okay? <laughs> it, it might help, okay? It actually may help some. But, but you can say things to me that get in my spirit, and if I'm not careful, I can be a, a wounded spirit, and a brother that is of a wounded spirit is very, very difficult to regain the trust. And so words are very, very important. And so when preachers get up and they say, I'm not preaching for your response, that's kind of, to me, this is just me, okay? Now, if somebody else gets up here and says that, just, if they're a guest, just kind of let it just go right over your shoulder, right? But to me, that's kind of antagonistic to the people sitting in the pew, right? That's basically saying, you're not responding the way I want you to respond, and so I'm going to insert this because I'm going to preach no matter what you do, and really, that's not true because anybody that's standing up here and teaching or preaching they need to desire a response. If you're preaching and teaching and there's no response, either something's wrong with you, there's a disconnect somewhere. Nobody walks in and says, I'll just preach to myself, and it doesn't matter who's in here. It matters who's in here. It matters what is stated, and it matters what comes back so that there's a free flow of God's anointing and his presence. I mean, I said all that to say this. In preaching, it's one thing to listen to the Scripture and listen to the Word and let God through the foolishness of preaching as it's divided severally to everybody in a building, which is amazing in and of itself. That's a miracle because somebody over here is getting something that somebody over here is not getting, but they're getting something different. And so God divides severally as he will. That's important. But what's really important is the application of what we are hearing. This is how you can separate faith from works. If what I'm hearing builds a faith in my life, but then I leave after Sunday and Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday rolls around and it's not put into action, what is it profiting me? What is it profiting me? So there, is, there can be, it's possible to separate faith from works. Secondly, in his question, can faith save him? If faith is separated from works, can faith alone save a person? Now, this is where it gets interesting. This is one of the reasons why Martin Luther hated James. Martin Luther was coming out of the Reformation. He was coming out of a period of indulgences and buying indulgences. And the Catholic Church was very much into this, and so people were paying for all this stuff. And Martin Luther saw this. He saw that as works, as buying your way into things and buying your way into blessings. I just want to say right here, right now, you can't buy the blessings of God. You can receive the blessings of God, but you can't buy the blessings of God. I'm thankful for that because if that were the case, the wealthy folks would buy the blessings of God and those who are not so wealthy wouldn't receive as much. That's not the way it works in the kingdom of God and in the church. When you walk in the doors, you are the same. There is no Jew. There's no Gentile. There's no male. There's no female. Everybody's one and the same. You step in the house of God. You can receive the anointing and the blessings of God just like everybody else can. 
No favoritism in the house of God. God's not looking at you saying, you didn't come from the right family. You don't have the right finances. You don't have the right education. You don't have the right knowledge. But thank God when we come into the house of God and we start lifting our voice to him, there is something that happens that levels the playing field and gives us all an opportunity at the table that has been spread. God doesn't leave anyone behind. Praise God. Praise God. Anybody thankful for that? Why don't you clap your hands and thank God. He, he gives everybody a position at the table. Martin Luther hated James. And the canonization of the scripture, which is a whole nother study of how the canon, the canon is the rule. That's what it means. The rule. The canon is basically what we have. It's the scriptures. And it went, it underwent a very long process of individuals making determinations and, I believe, the anointing of God also involved in that, inspiring individuals to, to put together what is the scriptures that are validated scriptures. That's what the canon is. And so there were periods in history where some of these books were discussed and debated about the merits of whether or not to include them into the canon or into the scripture. And during Martin Luther's era, he hated James. He thought it, he called it straw and stubble because he was coming out of faith alone. He, he, he was coming out of indulgences and he was coming out of seeing the practices of buying and, and doing works and paying penance and doing all this kind of stuff to achieve salvation. And so it really bothered him when James was making these claims that faith without works is dead. And so he didn't even want to see this particular book in the canon at all. He didn't want to see it in the Bible at all. There's other passages of Scripture that, that kind of suggest uh, the other side of that argument, for in Romans chapter 3 and verse 28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. This is Paul talking about the law, and he's saying an individual is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. So there's a, there is a new thing that is transpiring. There is a New Testament Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Jesus came to fulfill and culminate the law, and everything was going to be identified in Jesus, and he was going to move forward and propel us forward into a church age. And so he says in that particular passage that faith without the deeds of the law, a man is justified in that regard. Romans chapter 4 and verse 3, For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And so once again, there is, Paul is saying there was a faith, and faith is the activation, that, that which produces action. And so when you look at these passages of Scripture, you can, you can put them against each other, but they're not supposed to be against each other. What James is saying is if an individual has faith, it fl everything flows from faith. When you have faith, there's an activation. There should be an activation that produces something, a response, 
I'm moving toward. Faith moves me. Faith causes me to be active. James said, I don't understand how a person could do anything differently. Because if faith is there, it's going to do something. Otherwise, it's really not faith. It's been severed from works and something is wrong. It's been stunted. It's been shorted. It's been limited. It's lost its value. Paul is saying faith, a man is justified by faith without the works of the law. Paul was saying the law is not going to bring a person to salvation. It's going to provide opportunity to where you can see. It's a schoolmaster. It can point out where you're wrong, but it doesn't give you the power. It doesn't redeem you. It doesn't save you. Faith then moves us to receiving the salvation message that God provides for us. And so they're not working against each other. What they are saying is when you have faith, it's going to activate something in your life. It's going to produce something in your life. We could say for James that Abraham believed in God and that is precisely why he left the idol-worshiping environment around him and traveled to a land that he knew not, looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. Attached to that faith that Abraham saying, God, I'm going to have faith in the promise of God. He wasn't sitting there in the Ur of the Chaldees with his feet kicked up on the coffee table and not doing anything. No, he had faith to believe God's promises, and it produced a work. It produced an action that... That said, I'm getting up out of this idol-worshiping place, and I'm going seeking the promise of God. Abraham, where are you going? I don't know where I'm going because I've got faith, and faith doesn't always know what you're doing and where you're going. But I'm going to put it into action. I may wander around as a nomad, but I'm going to trust in God. God's doing something in my life, and therefore I'm going to I'm going to move closer to the promise. I'm going to involve myself in the kingdom of God. I'm going to pursue. The purposes of God. I'm not just going to receive, but I'm looking to seek something of value. James said, verse 15, if a brother or sister be naked, he's still trying to fill out this whole thing. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute daily food, and one of you say to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you don't give them anything. What does that profit? What value is there if there is? There are no clothes and there's no food that is given. You've just expressed words. You, you, you express something, but there's no action. So faith and works, faith produces works. It produces action. Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show you my faith by my works. James never suggests that you do works to get faith. He never said that. He says you have to have faith and it produces works. It flows out of faith. It doesn't go the other way. Well, I'm going to do a bunch of works. I'm going to do all this, and that's going to produce faith. James says that's not how it works. It flows from faith, and faith produces things that are active in your life. He said if you disconnect that, then your faith is dead. It is a dead faith. If we come to the house of God and we say, I've got faith tonight, we're going to worship God. But there's no worship. <laughs> That's a dead worship. If we say, I have faith in God that God can do this, but we don't put anything in action, that is a dead faith. 
You have a dead faith. You have left faith defenseless to the scavengers of the wild because he inserts the devil in here at some point. And, and the devil is in the details. This realm of unbelief with its phoniness and its lack of authenticity. I believe that the world is tired. I believe the world is sick and tired of people professing faith, but there's nothing that is connected to that faith that suggests you're any different from anybody else in the world. You know what I want? I want people of faith that are real people, that are living a life that is real, struggles, ups, downs, circumstances, but they love God, they've got a faith in God, and they've activated that faith in every area of their life praise God James is not saying you must do works to be saved he doesn't even go down that street he goes down the one way street of faith that by its very nature produces something called action and that action is the result of faith which produces the works you can't sever the connection between faith and action I know God can, but you just did it. You need to kick the butt out and insert the end. I better be careful here. I'll be able to say something here that I'll regret. I know God can, but, and that but destroys everything because the faith is there, but it never produces anything. How about saying, I know God can and... I know my situation's difficult, but I know that God can, and he will. He's going to do it. Instead of saying, I know that God can, but I've got all these problems. I've got these situations. You don't understand. No, I'm going to say, God can, and he will. God is, and he is able to do abundantly above all that we could think or ask. I've got to put it into action. I've got to put it into action. My faith has got to be put into action action and this all of a sudden is where James inserts the nugget right here it's connected it's connected the context it's all connected he inserts this passage he's talking about faith and works having faith put it into action and then he slides in there thou believest that there is one God thou doest well the devils also believe and tremble now we need to bifurcate this scripture cut it in half take the first phrase and then the second phrase there's two parts to what he's saying there and it's connected to faith and works everything that we have so far mentioned so let me just say something about the first part of this passage there's an emphatic declaration thou believest in one God thou doest well Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1 after these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. I am. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 13 to Moses. Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse number 6, when the writer is talking about not forgetting. Verse number 6, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods 
before me because why? I am your God. First Kings chapter 20 and verse 28, when your enemies surround you and difficulties face you, and there came a man of God and spake unto the king of Israel and said, Thus saith the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is the God of the hills, but he's not God of the valleys. Therefore I will deliver all this great multitude into thy hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Hey, when the enemies come against you, know that the I am is with you, okay? When they've got you surrounded on every side, know that the I am's going to show up and he's going to show out big. Psalm 46 and verse number 10, when you are in the middle of life, Scripture says, be still and know that I am God. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 42 and verse number 8, there is a prophetic utterance that is given. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. We're not serving a graven image. We're serving the I am. We're worshiping the I am. Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 11, I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. You, you, you better be looking for a Savior, and when the Savior comes, you better know and understand it's the Lord because he said there's no Savior beside me. Isaiah 46 and verse 5, I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. They that may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord. There is none else. Ezekiel chapter 37 and verse 13. You shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves. I shall put my spirit in you and you shall live. And I shall place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and have performed it saith the Lord. That's Old Testament representations of thou believest that there was one God thou doest well. Even as we make our way into the New Testament, that I am is found throughout the pages of the New Testament, particularly found throughout the pages of John. John in his gospel makes a point, makes a Greek point, a Greek grammar point when he says a go a me which is first person pronounced in the verb of being that is together, which is something like I, I myself. So it's together. It's a multiplicity of authoritative meaning, which is connected to the Old Testament of the I am telling Moses, you go back and you tell them the I am sent you. John chapter 6 and verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. John chapter 8 and verse 12, he said, I am the light of the world. John chapter 8 and verse 24, he said, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. John chapter 8 and verse 58, he said, verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was. Who are you? Who are you, Jesus? Our father's Abraham. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Let's get things settled here and get things straight. And let's put the authority where it belongs. 
It doesn't belong with you as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It belongs with the one who is manifested in the flesh and is declaring the glory of the unseen God standing before you. He's the creator of all things. John chapter 14 and verse 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Chapter 18 and verse 6, he said, I am he in the, in the garden when they came for him. Judas betrayed him. He said, I am he. They went backward and fell to the ground. So the Yahweh of the Old Testament emphatically declares his sovereignty. The same words of distinction are found on the lips of Jesus Christ. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament in visible form. You do well. James says, if you believe in one God, he is giving a compliment. He's giving a compliment in the midst of the discussion about faith and works and what is to be produced there. He gives a compliment. But notice that the second part is not so much of a compliment. He says, the devils also believe and tremble. The devils, though they believe in one God and tremble, are, in fact, still devils. You can believe that there's one God and still be a devil. And that's a problem. Nudge your neighbor, if it's okay, now if you're in the middle of something, this might not be good. And say, stop acting like the devil. How do I do that? I got to put some things into action. So the first part, you believe there's one God. You do well. But the second part, the devils also believe and tremble. Why? Why is this the case? Because the devils have faith to understand that there is one God but they don't produce the works or the action even on what they know. And that's the message right there. That's it. That's it. That's the whole thesis. The whole thing is built. It's all done, put together here to get to that point right there. The devils know there's one God, and yet there's still devils. How much more should we who have been washed, sanctified, justified, blood-bought, have a faith that understands that God is and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him, how much more should we activate our faith to say it's not just lip service, it's something I'm doing with my life. It's not just something I'm saying, it's something I'm making a part of everything that I am. I'm putting it into action. When you have faith in God, it leads you to repentance. There's an action associated with the faith. There's a new birth experience. My faith produces an understanding and an acceptance of what Jesus Christ laid down at Calvary. It's a new birth experience that he gave his life for. So when I feel his anointing upon my life and faith starts generating in my life, there is a response to receive what 
what he laid down. This is why I've got to walk away from some things. That's what repentance is. This is why I've got to identify with the name that's above every name. Not as a tradition, not as something that we just do, but something that is connected to salvation. It is why I seek the baptism of the Holy Ghost because I need the anointing of God in my life to give me the ability to be an overcomer. Faith produces the action. It's also why I become a disciple of Jesus Christ in every other area of my life because faith is producing some things. The devil's in the details. The detail here is the devils know there's one God, but they don't activify, activate the faith and understanding. And James is talking to the New Testament church and the 12 tribes of Israel, which is generally at large. He's saying, those of you that are in the church, your faith has to be connected to your actions because you can believe and have faith in the things of God, but if you don't activate the faith that produces the works in your life, you're like a devil that believes in one God <clears throat> and yet still remains a devil. And he gives two illustrations, Brother Callister, if you would come tonight or today, this day, gives two illustrations of Abraham. Abraham's walking by faith, it produced action. Abraham lived in the society of Sumerian culture, the Ur, Ur of the Chaldees, very idol-generated, uh, focused culture and society. God calls him out of that, and his faith produces great action, and he becomes the father of the faith. He also mentions at the end of this whole section, Rahab, who has faith to believe that there is a God that can save her and she receives the messengers and sends them out another way. God becomes a mere abstraction unless we get the I am into our world by the action of our faith. And when God becomes the center of your world, it changes everything. The ripple effect changes every area of your life. Praise God. You may feel like you're in a corner Three Hebrew children felt like they were backed into a corner, and yet their faith produced great action, taking a stand for God. The king looks in and he says, I see one that looks like the Son of God. He sees another figure. God has shown up. Daniel activates his faith. David activates his faith. Moses activates his faith. The landscape, ladies and gentlemen, the landscape of the Bible is full of examples of James teaching what he's teaching. Faith produces something. In conclusion here today, I want to talk about some individuals who through faith did many mighty things. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 33. 
who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of men. How? Just faith? No, they had faith in a God and they put that faith into action. Quench the fire. Escape the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trials of cruel mockings and scourgings, bonds and imprisonment, stoned, sawn asunder, tempted, slain with the sword, wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. And then he says, God, having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Praise God. How about us today in the house of God? putting our faith into action instead of saying, I know God can, but, and we, we run out a big old laundry list of reasons why. Why not stand to our feet today and say, I'm going to have faith in God and I'm going to say, I have faith in God and, and. Isn't that amazing how one word makes such a big, big difference? You say, but right there, you kill it. You say and changes everything. I know I may be facing difficult circumstances, but I have faith in God and I know God can work through it. I know I may be at the bottom and I need salvation and a change in my life and God is able to reach anybody and I'm going to accept that. Faith that puts it into action. And today in the house of God as they prepare to sing we come to a conclusion of this service today. Praise God with an uplifted voice. And if you would like uplifted hands, I want you to activate some faith in the house of God today. I have faith in God and I know he's going to do a work. Praise God. Why don't you lift your hands together and let's declare Nothing that. Let's declare that in the house of God. God, I know that you're able to do great things. I'm seeking you. I have faith in you. And I know that you'll fulfill that promise. It's a promise to all that are afar off. You can fill with the Holy Ghost. You can change situations. You're a miracle working, God. You respond to me and you're in the house of God today. So I declare faith in this place. I'm putting it in action based on what I say, what I do, where I go, who I talk to, what I'm doing in the house of God and out of the house of God, what I'm doing on the job, what I'm doing things on my own and alone, God. I'm going to activate my faith before you. Praise God. Come on, somebody, pray the prayer of faith today.